This year, the Wellness Summit returns. 95% of the people you know out there want you to play it safe. They don't want you to jump over fire. You can get burned. They don't want you to live the life that you were born to live. You've got to remember that if you're cooking food, you want to love it. You don't want to be thinking, oh, I don't want to have to prepare another meal for my husband who doesn't appreciate it. I don't have to prepare another meal for my wife who just doesn't care. She just wants peanut butter on toast. Wake the heck up. You are where you're at right here, right now, because of all the choices you have made up to this point. Now, I didn't know what to do with being blown up. I didn't know what to do with that until the psychologist told me, you're going to have post-traumatic stress disorder, Karen. I went, okay, great. Now, at least I know what to do with that. Get ready, Melbourne. The summit is back. Well, other people are just walking through fire. They were... I mean, look, look, look at it. And I'm on the phone going, yeah, and he's I mean, look, like this. And then he's lifted up his top and he's squeezing that, and I'm going, yeah, I can't even. When are we masking? There's something there that you want that you haven't been doing for yourself. Zazen Alkaline Water presents the 2018 Wellness Summit. Bigger and better than ever. All info and tickets at thewellnesssummit.com. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 170 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by our very good friend, Dr. Phil Maffetone. In today's episode, Phil and I explore the overfat pandemic and how westernization and the introduction of highly processed sugar-rich foods is destroying the health of people in countries including India, where at the same time, many are starving. We discuss the influence of big sugar, the minimal deadly dose, and what even one taste of sugar does to your taste buds, eating behavior, and neurology. Let's welcome Phil back onto The Real Food Real. Hi, Steph. Great to be with you. Really looking forward to chatting with you. It's been some time since we've had you back on The Real Food Real. So what I wanted to start with was your recent article that was obviously published on your website, philmaffetone.com. The article was titled The Overfat Pandemic in India. And I think this is a really interesting topic. And um, I know this article stems from a recent study that you've been involved with. So do you want to maybe start there and tell us more about that study? 
Sure. Uh, it's really a continuation of uh, three previous studies. Uh, the first one, the first one going back to 2016, if I remember, where um, I just thought it it was very important to to introduce the terms overfat and underfat. It was really overfat that I wanted to introduce, but I wanted to kind of balance it out. So the the paper was was titled "Overfat and Underfat." Um, new terms, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I kind of, um, my, my colleague Paul Larson and Ivan Rivera, uh, and I, uh, put this, uh, review paper together and said, look, there's, there's, there are people who are overweight, there are people who are obese, and there are different levels of obesity, and the, <clears throat> the weight and the obese, um, uh, um, terminology is all based on BMI, body mass index, and BMI has a has a problem because it really doesn't measure body fat. And a lot of people with normal BMI have excess body fat um, by the consensus that um, is is out there. And so um, I thought let's let's call it overfat, and and then the people who who have too little body fat, um, which are people who are malnourished and athletes who are severely overtrained, uh, and people who have eating disorders, um, they would be considered underfat. And and so that was the first study. And what we did was kind of get a good general view of how many people in the world were overfat and and um I've always used the, or in the last 10, 15 years, I, I've always used um, 75% of the world is overfat. And people would start asking me, how do you come up with that number? And I, you know, I've, I've gone through it in my head <clears throat> uh, many times, and I still come up with 75. We went through a process where we, we took a lot of data, and to make a long, boring story short, we came up with uh, a figure that went up to 76%. And then I realized <clears throat> after that study was published that um, the number of people in developed countries versus developing countries uh, was significantly different. There were about six times more people in developing countries. And so that 76% was pretty skewed and I decided, okay, let's do a study on developed nations. Let's take the top 30 developed nations. And we found that um, <clears throat> 85 to 90% of developed, of adults in developed nations were over fat. And, um, and then the third study, uh, as that was being written up, uh, I saw data from the U.S. CDC where they they had um, they had a lot of new data that showed there were more overweight and obese people and um, and other problems uh, in the U.S. And so I took that data and wrote a new paper that showed 91% of American adults were overfat. And somewhere along the way, I was doing a um, lecture tour in India. I was at some marathons uh, speaking, and 
did uh, spoke to the the public health uh, department and the nutrition uh, group there and a bunch of other uh, organizations and um, realized that there there were a lot of overfat Indians um, and sure enough there were there were some studies there were actually some very good studies better than anywhere else that I found to come up with a an overfat number and what we showed was that there were up to 80% overfat adults in India uh, and 41% um, children were overfat, which is an, an incredible number when you think that the number of people in India who are starving, it, it's come down quite a bit, but it's still rather high. And um, when people think of India, they think of starvation and they think of malnutrition. And when you're in India, when you're in the big cities, there are a lot of people living on the street who are uh, malnourished. But the 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 number of of overfat adults at eighty percent that's uh, that's a shocker. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, it's a really interesting point, which is I'm sure part of the reason why you took the overfat concept to India because, you know, people do have this image of India where there is a lot of, you know, famine and starvation and obviously that's only parts of it, but it's quite significant that 80% of adults, and I know the study also found that 40% 40% of children are also overfat. Yeah, and when you're there, just like when you go to other other countries that um, are developing, you realize that one, one of the things that hits you right away, if you go into even a small city, it doesn't have to be a big, a big city, is that all the junk food companies are there. Pepsi, Coke, McDonald's, Burger King, you know, uh, whether it's Kenya or um, I remember going to the uh, 1988 Olympics uh, in Korea. Um, and sure, in Seoul, you saw all the junk food companies. But I like I like um, uh, visiting the countryside and you see the same junk food there as well. Uh, and this was back in '88. So last, you know, last year when I was in India, it was quite evident why they're they're so overfat as a nation, um, and and the the problem is growing uh, without a doubt. But and I knew this before. When you really think about it, um, we should say, well, how how does India become overfat in such a short period of time? The, the junk food companies haven't been there for that long. They've been there for a while, but they haven't been there for that long. Well, what happened? And as a, as a child, I remember uh, my, my parents had a TV, and I, 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 I swore that they made me watch TV. Um, I haven't had a TV in 25 years. But I, when I was a kid, I watched TV, and I remember the ads where they would say, please send us donations to help um, starving people in, in, in India. 
and Africa and China. And uh, I remember uh, I, I might have been in high school because it, it really it really it really affected me um, seeing this one commercial uh, where they were asking for donations so that they could send uh, aid to these countries. And they were showing people loading sacks of white flour onto a, a truck or a boat or I don't know what. But uh, I just remember there were sacks of white flour. And it was soon after that that I became interested in nutrition. And, and that, that image has stuck with me. And when you look at the, the rations, when you look at the, the food, quote unquote, the food that they sent and have been sending for decades it's a very high sugar content food yeah they they send white flour but they also send um <clears throat> sort of the equivalent of energy bars and meals and um you know, little plastic trays and whatnot and these things uh when you when you when you search them out to see what they're made of the amount of sugar is astronomically high we're talking about a seven you know a product that has 75 percent sugar in some cases and so to see in 2018 or 2017 which is the data we had that up to 80 percent of indian adults are over fat it certainly makes a whole lot of sense when you see what those two three generations have been eating uh, for all these years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, a really interesting paradox because we know that obviously there are still parts of India where, you know, the farmers are growing the traditional foods, but it's that westernization where the highly refined, processed and obviously high sugar foods are or have been introduced and Clearly, we see what that's done to the health of the nation. In your article, um, you made a statement about the the decades-long donations of very high-sugar subsidies. Is is that what you mean with the donations of, of the food, that they're only able to provide, yeah, like the white flowers and sugars? And, and do you know more as yes. to why? Uh, no, I think that um – that's what I meant. Yeah, I think that's <clears throat> that's a big factor. Um, uh, you know, there are programs that that don't do that. For example, the Peace Corps coming out of the U.S. Um, teach people, and I assume the Peace Corps is in India. I'm not up up on on where they go, but what the Peace Corps does is teach people how to grow their own food. Um, so. You know, it, it, it just depends on the kind of aid. But you you mentioned something that's very, very important, and that's westernization. They have become westernized. So not only have they allowed junk food to come into their country and essentially take over the food supply, there are there are plenty of farmers, Indian farmers, who grow food and sell those foods in the marketplace. But people would people people would rather buy the junk food because it's a stigma. It's a westernization. It means you know we're 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 Western now. 
Um, and and that's that's really sad. And just one more interesting finding was that um, in 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 India and all of South Asia, so Pakistan and Nepal and other um, countries in in that region. Um, have a very high incidence, very high prevalence of um, abdominal overfat. In fact, uh, what we showed in the article was that about half the people who were overfat in India had abdominal obesity accompanied by normal weight, which is uh, about twice the rate in developed nations. So in the U.S. and Australia, for example, um, about 20% of normal weight adults have abdominal obesity and are, are and are over fat. So, the, you know, there's there's a uniqueness there that uh, I think we'll probably see in all the Asian, the South Asian countries, and most likely the Northern African states as well. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, and. Um, I wanted to speak to another article that you'd written on this topic and the, the article is how junk food companies keep growing. And, you know, I think we've got to explore that a little bit further because they are a big part of the problem that we're now seeing essentially worldwide. Um, and in this article, you know, again, we're talking about the subsidies and the the influence of particular companies. But what are your thoughts on how those companies are impacting the world and like let's talk about some solutions in terms of the cost factor and and the that funding that we see in the junk food realm yeah they are responsible for what's happening um they are they are more powerful than the governments just look in the u.s for example at how the 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 government is subsidizing junk food, um, uh, there's no there's there's no one in the scientific community or in the clinical community that would argue um, that junk food is healthy and it's okay to eat. Just like there's nobody, unless you work for the tobacco companies, that will argue that smoking cigarettes is okay. Um, and so. There's a consensus, yet the government is still, A, subsidizing foods, B, allowing uh, these foods to, to be sold in schools, in hospitals, in um, e- everywhere, essentially. And, um, and when you consider the fact that if we look at, at um, you know, primary problems versus um, secondary uh, downstream effects. So what is the cause and what is the result? What is the symptom? Um, the cause of virtually all the chronic illnesses, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, um, stroke, um, and, and a wide variety of physical impairments you know, low back, just looking at low back pain. There was an article um, that came out in The Lancet a month or so ago, actually a series of three articles, 
um, showing that uh, the incidence of low back pain has um, increased dramatically in the last 30 years. Well, so has cancer and heart disease and Alzheimer's and all you know, diabetes, hypertension, because the incidence of overfat has skyrocketed during that time. And the reason for all these chronic diseases stems from being overfat. You have overfat, chronic inflammation, and carbohydrate intolerance or insulin resistance. And those three conditions probably are initiated by being overfat. Excess body fat is pretty powerful. Um, and this is the beginning of these chronic illnesses. So um, it's amazing that governments are allowing all of this to happen. And um, I, I know that, you know, this, this maybe is an athletic audience. And athletes say, well, you know, I'm young and healthy and I don't have to worry about those diseases. Well, you know what? You do because that's what prevention is all about. You prevent these conditions early in life. You don't prevent them when you start getting symptoms. But at the same time, the same problem, excess body fat, um, chronic inflammation, insulin resistance, those problems will prevent you from performing your best. So it is important for everyone who's listening and everybody else in the world for that matter. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's a really important conversation because what we're also seeing in that sort of junk food space and certainly with the influence of big sugar is that what they're now doing is they're realizing that, you know, consumers have this increased awareness of unhealthy ingredients, right? The majority of people, especially our listeners, are quite educated and, you know, we're not getting brainwashed like we were 10, 20 or 30 years ago with just believing a marketing campaign or a commercial on the television. But, you know, obviously these companies are then trying to, I guess, recreate their products with some greenwashing, as I call it, essentially with like labeling, like, you know, no sugar added we see or mm -hmm. no artificial additives, or some of them are even sort of bringing out these, you know, new quote unquote products that are just essentially disguised better than they were in the eighties and nineties. And that's a really big problem. It is. And you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's been going on from as far back as I can remember. Um, but, you know, way back then, um, and, and if we look at the tobacco industry and what they went through, they're doing the same thing with, with junk food, with sugar. Um, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, the, um, the concern by some doctors was, um, you know, maybe smoking is not so healthy after all. So what did the what did the tobacco companies do in response to that growing idea that the doctors are telling people that uh, smoking isn't good? They got doctors to do commercials saying that smoking was healthy. And that's essentially what the, you know, the sugar, big sugar, which is much bigger than big tobacco. Um, that's what they're doing. And they're doing it in clever ways because people do learn about their deceit. Um, and today with the internet, 
on the one hand, it's easier to uncover things. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I mentioned to somebody not too long ago about um, an article in the, I think it was in the New York Times, showing that um, Coca-Cola, um, uh, some of their board was overseeing some research about sugar or something. And the, the person said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, everybody does that. It's like, oh, no big deal. Yeah. Well, it is a big deal. And, <laughs> you know, when, we, when, we, when we're nonchalant about gross deceit and, 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 you know, doctors saying smoking is healthy for you, and if you have asthma especially, you should smoke. That's what they said back then. Um, you know, <clears throat> where has our society gone? What what has happened? Have we have we been dumbed down so much that we're being led astray um, to the slaughterhouse? That's that's what it seems like. Yeah, I agree. Like, I think unfortunately we've been believing these companies for so long, but you know, that this new wave of awareness and, as you say, the abundance of information that we have via technology, you know, it's it's where we need to continue to direct our focus because we know that, you know, junk food companies literally employ scientists and create and publish these scientific papers with, you know, really fine print about some conflict of interest that we, some like a, you know, a normal um consumer wouldn't be aware of or may not read if they're not versed on how to interpret scientific papers. Right, right. And yeah, that's a that's 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 a that's an ongoing problem and you know way back when you didn't have to divulge any conflict of interest and then then it was voluntary and then you know today you have to you have to divulge it and the, you know they they they're they're getting quite strict, um, but like you say, there's the fine print, and and a lot of people don't pay attention to that. Well, I think a lot of people are not quite aware of, unfortunately, how these or some scientific papers end up being published. You know, the the sort of rebuttal that I've always got is, "Oh, where's the research? Where's the research?" But you know, I think that's quite naive. I mean, firstly, we know how long it takes for, you know, con from conception to publication, that's years. And I personally don't want to wait for the science, but mm -hmm. more so that, yeah, there are, there is a lot of, um, yeah, um, in influence. And obviously we have to think about who's funding the study. And I, I think I saw some numbers around, yeah, that Coca-Cola has spent, yeah, it's millions of dollars investing in in research to try and prove that fat was the problem. They were a big part right, of why right. we had that low fat um, yep. epidemic because they were spending research trying to get us to ignore the problems with sugar. Yeah, and and you know that example is a good one because they didn't just convince. Um, uh, mothers and fathers, they didn't just convince athletes 
or athlete magazines, they convinced people who write textbooks. Because what did we learn from as far back as I can remember? Um, and, and I, I want to say high school biology. Um, I learned that the human body was a glucose-based system. We, we use glucose for energy. And I didn't even hear about the fact that we could use fat and ketones until uh, w- way past graduate school. You know, this is, this, this is, and, and even today, if you look in a lot of textbooks, you just, you don't, it's a glucose based body that we have. And, and it's really, it's really sad that we're still teaching people that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I studied, you know, a sport and exercise science degree in 2001, I think. <laughs> Gosh, that's a long time ago now. But yeah, I still remember the only conversation we ever had about fat burning was, you know, when you would see those really old fashioned um, heart rate zones on a treadmill that told you, you know, if you were sort of walking or low intensity that you'd be burning more fat. But I mean, that was literally as far as the conversation went. And you're right. Like, yeah, the textbooks that we were purchasing and using for a tertiary education was very much carbohydrates like I remember my this sports nutrition subject I did and this was in my um, postgraduate so it was probably about six years later I just I really struggled with that entire course because I had to sit there listening to carbohydrate loading and Gatorade and sports gels and I by that point in time I knew better and I was already um you know, speaking my language around fat burning and obviously all the things that you and I have spoken about before. But, yeah, it broke my heart that there was this room of students that didn't know any better and were, again, being brainwashed and they're the educators that then go on and perpetuate the problem because they don't know any different and that carbohydrate conversation just keeps continuing for generations. It does. It does. And, and by the way, just an aside, you told me you were born in 1995. <laughs> I'm looking pretty good, aren't I? It's all the great uh, food I eat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember back in back in the old days, I guess, uh, talking, you know, lecturing to a, a group of athletes and mentioning fat burning, and it was they didn't even ask quest they they couldn't conceive of a question to ask. Um, and once in a while, somebody would say, what do you mean fat burning? We, we burn glucose. And then I would talk about, you know, this, this idea of fat burning. As a matter of fact, it was, it was um, uh, one, uh, one lecture I did. Um, I can't remember where it was, but there were, there were discussions about um, burning calories. And people were, were saying, well, if I do this, I burn more calories than if I do that. It was about slow running versus fast running. If I, if I run faster, I burn more calories. But, and, and everybody's trying to get in on this discussion, and I'm trying to answer more than one question at a time. And finally, I said, calories of what? And the room was quiet. <clears throat> it just 
it just created such confusion because nobody ever asked them, when you're burning calories, what do you burn calories of? And and it's like, <laughs> no, that's an incomplete sentence. Calories of glucose, calories of fat. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been changing. It, the process has been changing for a long time, but it would get blown out of the water by the junk food companies um, because they would see things happening and they would do something in response to it and it would be very successful. Um, this last um, 10 years, maybe, um, I think the, the increased uh, interest in fat burning and the understanding that we do burn fat and we can burn off body fat by training our metabolism the right way, um, I think I think things are taking hold like I've never seen before, which is really quite quite nice. So I don't I don't you know people don't walk the other way when they see me now like they used to. <laughs> well, I think it must be so fascinating for you to see that transition. Like you say, ten years, and and for me, I have definitely seen probably the biggest shift in the last five because even when I started. Oh, yeah. The natural nutritionist that was um what year are we in now so 2011 most people who met me would yeah either think i was crazy and that i'd fallen out of a tree because in 2011 we still thought you know eggs would give us heart disease and we had that whole cholesterol saturated fat myth that was really strong and um then you know over the course of say the last five years you know we're finally opening our eyes and as you wrote about the death of the low fat era like that's that's taken decades but you know we're, we're getting there we've got a long way to go but the improvements now are amazing yeah uh, without a doubt and and you know it's 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 people like you who do these podcasts and share the information that it, it's just very important to get the word out because we're battling still against big, big sugar and, and the governments, um, who are telling people it's okay to eat junk food. So we're battling against that. Um, we really have science on our side. Of course, the clinicians, um, primarily are on our side. Um, um, but it's still a tough battle and we, we need to, we need to keep fighting. Yeah. So let's talk more about solutions because, I feel like one of the big problems, and, and maybe not so much with my audience, but, you know, we can share this podcast far and wide to those that maybe aren't quite across the the problem as much as you and I are. But what are your thoughts on a solution? You know, we know that packaged foods are, are less expensive in that initial situation, but they obviously have quite a large long-term cost attached to them because of the diseases and ill health that they create. But in, in terms of a solution, do you think it's largely cost-driven to, to have healthy food become more available or affordable? Well, the, the, the junk food companies have created a really great model, and it comes down to um, cost and accessibility. It's a lot cheaper to go to uh, McDonald's 
and spend $3 to get what you think is a meal um, than to uh, find a, a, a salad with, with meat or eggs or cheese, um, you know, and healthy vegetables. Uh, and, and so we're, we're in a, we're in a society where, where people want instant gratification and that includes their next meal. They're not planning ahead for their next meal. They, they know it's, it's it's a hundred meters away wherever they are unless they're out in the in the wilderness. Um, so that that easy accessibility of junk food and the cheapness of it um, is a real tough thing. And what we need to do is keep educating people and showing them how easy it is to, if they plan just a little bit, uh, shop for healthy food. And it's really not a whole lot more expensive. It's in, in many ways, it's not more expensive. If you if you, if you look at the um, if you look at it from a nutritional standpoint, it's it's actually cheaper. Um, but but the fact is, uh, meal compared to meals, uh, if, if if you look at um, buying food and making your own meal, um, it's not really much more or not any more expensive. And um, but it takes planning and. It takes um, doing something that people have lost their their ability to do, and that's preparing a meal. I actually had somebody, an adult, who was in his 40s. It was in his late 40s. He said, what do you do with carrots? Do you, do you cook them? How do you cook them? <laughs> oh, I always remember my first job as a nutritionist, um, and I would meet grown men that couldn't boil an egg. And mm -hmm. I think that is a big part of the problem because, you know, we think if you think about what we're taught or even if it's around nutrition, like the practicality is definitely lost. You know, we have to learn so many things and I, I feel like, you know, that practical education is the most valuable because then we're more – I guess, yeah, armed with information to not be brainwashed by big sugar. I mean, they don't care about our health. That's that's not their goal, you know. They they continue to deny the impact of unhealthy food on, on our health, like for today and certainly into the future, and they just keep trying to create food like better-looking junk food and, you know, they find a way to make it appear a little bit better than the original version or the last product they released, but it's 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 all it's all lies, and I think it's really important that we don't continue to fall into that trap. You know, cereal is not breakfast right. just because they've changed the number of colorings or they've popped in some synthetic fake vitamins that a scientist has created. Like that doesn't make it any better, right? And you know, it's it it. It isn't going to help us. It isn't going to help if me or you or anybody else who's <clears throat> who's trying to help people eat better and be healthy. It's not going to um, do us any good to try and battle these um, big sugar companies or the governments. Uh, we we can't do that, and all we can do is help people one by one. It's it's what I did. 
it's why I went back to school and why I went into practice. And all along the way, I realized, oh, I could do this and influence more people. So I started writing articles. Then I started doing little lectures. Then I started uh, doing bigger lectures. And then I started writing books. Um, and now I have this company I have now where we have a, a big website and um, an app and we're, we're trying to, we're trying, you know, basically I'm trying to do the same thing, help one person at a time um, understand how their bodies work and what they can do to be healthier. And it's, and, and how easy it is. We're not talking about anything complicated. And but we're still battling big sugar and governments because they have dumbed down society. You know, we, we just, man, they just, you know, I stopped, I stopped submitting articles to a lot of the, the, the magazines that are out there because they kept wanting simpler and simpler articles. And, and I just said, I'm already at a seventh grade level. I'm not doing this anymore. Um, so let's, you know, let's give real information to people who want to do something about their health and fitness. Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to be a little bit more detailed because we obviously want them to understand things like basic physiology so they can appreciate the benefits of fat burning and that ketones aren't the devil that they've been, you know, led to believe, um, for decades. Right. Right. All, all these things. Um, and you still hear it from, from health practitioners. Um, I was, uh, um, somewhere and, and I was introduced to a health practitioner, uh, and the topic of, uh, nutritional ketosis came up and, um, the immediate comment was, oh, that's a very dangerous thing. And I said, you mean ketoacidosis? Oh, yeah, very, that's very dangerous. So, again, the, the, the powers that be have shifted the thought process to somewhere totally different than where it should be. And um, it's, it's sad. But, again, we're, you know, um, our job is to help people and we do it as, as um, well as we can and, and in as many different ways as we can. I mean, even all the research I do is oriented to, to helping people. Um, it was actually very difficult because in writing the earlier overfat articles, it, it, the reviewers didn't want to see a lot of, okay, you got all these overfat people, but why are they there? You know, and you sort of have to sneak little things in. And finally, um, something interesting happened on, on the, the one that was published in November on the overfat adults and children in the U.S. Um, I, I was taught, I was really brave and I was quoting a lot of studies about sugar, excess sugar impairing, uh, fat burning. And even if you're exercising enough, you can still get overfed. And I went on and on. And this reviewer said, why are you talking about all of this, all these studies on sugar? Everybody knows that sugar is the problem. <laughs> and I just, and I realized that, 
why don't you tell your friends? <laughs> yeah, tell everybody. So it's a it's a it's a challenge, um, but you know that's what we do, and and I, I appreciate your work and all the other people that are out there trying to do the same the same things. Yeah. Amazing. Such a fascinating space. And I look forward to, you know, being able to look back on this year and see how far we can go and, we, you know, where we'll be in five years' time and then in 10 years' time. I, I'm I, I'm looking forward to that too. Um, just a, a, another aside um, in terms of where it can go, um, and I hate to be negative and bring up sad things but you know there are there are scientists that say you know we as a species we could be 50,000 years into extinction uh and when you look at fertility um rates plummeting when you look at uh life expectancy now uh over the peak and we're going the wrong way now or diminishing we we have to think wow things are Things are changing in a bad direction. Well, if if we are going extinct as a species, it doesn't mean we disappear completely. Some species do disappear completely, but most don't. So what happens instead is we we just end up with very small a small number of people compared to the larger number of people that we have today. And if we do go in that direction, if that's where we're headed, then then we certainly want to help the future generations who want to help because they're the ones that are going to survive. Yeah, definitely. And we can obviously make a big change to the exponential progression of that extinction with the choices that we make about what we put in our mouth. Yep. Those choices are are the key. We have that ability to make those choices. So a slight aside, but something I definitely wanted to share with my audience um, because we love everything that you do. I'd love to talk about um, your fairly new supplement range. Like I know that you don't have um, international shipping just yet, but I see that it's on the cards. Um, But tell us more about why you've created this range and, yeah, share with us the finer details. Well, I've been formulating for, um, I, I want to say, the early 80s uh, when I, I consulted for a number of companies. And um, the goal was always to make a healthier product, whether whether it was a dietary supplement or an energy bar or drink. Um, and it was a very difficult thing. Um, companies came to me and said, "Would you help us formulate a healthier product? We're, we're going to, you know, we're going to come out with a healthier product." And I said, "Sure." And it would work out well until um, the cost factor started to be the issue. And they said, "Well, we need to we need to change uh, the formula because it's going to cost too much." And um, so it became a problem. And you know, I eventually just decided to make uh, my own products where nobody would tell me that it costs too much to make. <clears throat> and that's what we have now. We have uh, so far just four products. Um, the reason I chose those four is they 
I'm not any longer in clinical practice, but if I was, these would be the products I would want if I had to limit the the line to only four products. Um, so there's a multi, there's a B complex, there's a vitamin C, and there's a vitamin D, but they're made from foods and they're not really like traditional supplements. Um, uh, for example, vitamin B, the B complex and vitamin C, those products in the marketplace, 99% of them are just synthetic vitamins. They're made by a drug company. Um, they're, they're artificial products. In the case of the B vitamins, for example, they're, they're not active. They're inactive and the body has to metabolize them into active B vitamins. Well, that could be a problem, and we, we already know it's a problem for a lot of B vitamins. Uh, the folate, for example, we know there's a genetic mutation now, which may have come about because of the use of synthetic folic acid for all those years. But up to 40% of the population, this is a frightening thing, up to 40% of the population has this genetic mutation suddenly that has appeared which prevents us from converting inactive synthetic folic acid into the active form. Um, and those people are probably in need of higher amounts of natural folate as well. But the bottom line is they don't really get any natural folate because they don't eat folate-rich foods um, because they're eating junk food. And the junk food has fortified folic acid in it. So they're not able to utilize that. So, you know, all these people are walking around with severe folate deficiencies. And um, that's a serious nutrient to be low in because of its relationship with cancer and heart disease and chronic inflammation and um, brain health, all, all kinds of things. <clears throat> so um, so the, the B vitamins, for example, that I created are all active forms of B vitamins the vitamin C um, is uh, the vitamin C found in food, which means it comes along with a whole lot of other nutrients, phytonutrients that um, uh, help the body metabolize uh, things for the immune system. Uh, the vitamin D has uh, the two forms of vitamin K uh, that many people don't get. And without vitamin K, we may not utilize our um, our vitamin D from a supplement form. And what a lot of people don't realize is that we actually need vitamin D from both the sun and food sources. And getting it from sun is easy if you, you know, people who listen to you or, or me and now enough people talking about the importance of being in the sun. But because they don't eat um, liver or, or kidneys or um, other foods that might have vitamin D, um, they're left to take supplements, uh, which is okay um, and actually very important. But we need both sources of vitamin D, the sun and, and a food source, a supplement source, because they have different functions. So if we want to help our body from a standpoint of vitamin D metabolism, we, we have to do both. So I put, I put the both forms of vitamin K in there because 
Um, when you start talking to people about vitamin D, and, and now that they're aware, you're seeing a lot of people getting tested. And I'm amazed. Oh, when I was in India, there were so many people deficient in vitamin D. People were coming up to me saying, oh, look at my vitamin D test. And I just couldn't believe how low so many people were. And you see that here in the U.S. and I know in Australia as well. Um, and sometimes when you say you need to take some vitamin D in addition to being in the sun, they often say, well, I'm taking 5,000 units of vitamin D and have been for many months. Well, many of these people can take the vitamin D, but they don't get the levels up because they're, they're lacking the vitamin K or they're lacking uh, zinc or, or um, magnesium. <clears throat> so I put those nutrients in there. And these are very functional formulas that um, will do what food used to do for us and, and doesn't quite do it anymore. Yeah, well, that is an important point because people are a little bit, some people are a little bit reluctant with supplements. And, you know, I appreciate that, but we've got to look at, you know, what we can actually get from our food these days with things like soil quality and modern agricultural practices. And then, you know, you look at someone's bloods and I have the healthiest people coming to see me in the clinic and they still have vitamin D levels around, you know, 40 or 50. And th their doctors will tell them that's okay because it's in inside that <laughs> wide, archaic reference range. Um, yeah. but it, and, and it's a big problem, as you say, as well as, you know, I try to go food first. And unfortunately, those foods like liver <laughs> and organ meats um, are not everyone's favorite thing to include. And I get a lot of resistance when I talk about the importance sure. of these foods. Sure, and, and uh, liver actually has a lot of vitamin C in it. Um, but these foods are also difficult to find. Um, liver is not something you want to eat unless you know where it comes from uh, because it does filter the blood. And if, if the animal is not healthy, the, the last thing in the animal you want to eat is the liver. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very difficult. And, you know, that sunshine vitamin D thing is another problem that we have in our society where a comp companies, the cosmetic company, the cosmetic industry is huge. It's not as big as big sugar, but it's a huge industry. And they have created this vitamin D epidemic, vitamin D uh, deficiency epidemic. Um, I, I was I was shocked years ago. It was probably, um, and these studies were both ignored. Um, they showed. I, I want to say they came out. One came out in 1980. One came out in 1982. They both showed that <clears throat> about 75 percent of the populations. Uh, one study was in Arizona, and one study was in Florida, the two sunniest states in the U.S. And they were showing that 75% of the population was um, either deficient or insufficient in vitamin D. That's just incredible. Yeah, so, it's absolutely you know, huge. People don't, you know, people are still afraid to go out in the sun. And I, 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 you know, going for a run on the beach is wonderful, but I have to be careful when I go, not just because of the tide, but because of the tourists. Because I have to work my way through a group of tourists to get 
to the beach to run away from the tourists. And in order to do that, I have to hold my breath because they're all spray. I didn't know that, every, you know, all these sunscreen products now are sprays. They're all spraying themselves. It's like one big cloud of <laughs> toxic. Oh. Toxic spray. <laughs> so there's still, you know, yeah, you don't want to get burned. And, um, no, of course not. Uh, and and I, do we still have to say that? I guess we do. Yes. Go in the sun, but don't get burned. I don't know why. Australia was always the toughest place to talk about healthy sun exposure. Uh, it still is. Even- <laughs> Even is it still? Even when I wrote articles uh, years ago, uh, you know, when the advent of the internet and people could see your articles um, online, I would get these nasty letters. Some of them were very emotional. My cousin, you know, was was uh, died from you know. Uh, well, I'm sorry, but um, let's look at the big picture. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a lot to do with the education and, and how strong the slip slops that message was. And yes, it's important. Again, we don't want you to get burnt. But I grew up in North Queensland. So we were, yeah, we were made to be afraid of the sun. And mm-hmm. that that I think has, again, flown through generations, which we now see is manifesting in these, yeah, these really crazy deficiencies. And you know, again, the reference range is the problem because a doctor will tell you you're fine if unless you're lower than, I believe, 45, um, you know, nanomoles per litre, whereas we want, you know, 100 to 150. So it's, yeah, it's vastly different. Yeah, if you, if you look at the – and there's some good research on this. If you look at the, um, the, the vitamin D levels that protect against melanoma – and protect against other cancers, they're much higher than what what most practitioners are are recommending. And so we're we're back to the same old problem, which is doctors are not even reading their own journals. Practitioners are not keeping up with their education. Um, they're they're holding on to these old ideas. So it's 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 another sad. Um, you know, it's sort of a dumbing down of uh, of society. Yes, or brainwashing. <laughs> so it's why there's so much power in education. Yeah. Oh, so much power is. You have to be dumbed down to to be brainwashed. You have to, you know, um, propaganda is very powerful, and it, it 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 it's it's part of the dumbing down process. You know, when you're when you're told something really stupid, and you believe it, you're you're way past the dumbing down point. And there are you know, you mentioned cholesterol, and I don't know if you mentioned salt, but that's another one. But there are still people who will you know will not eat eggs because they're afraid of them. And I know they've heard. They've heard the recommendations that it's okay to eat them. Oh, but as you also know, it's decades of of believing one way of believing low fat calorie counting, or that you know calories in, calories out. As you mentioned before about people being so obsessed with how many calories they're burning in exercise, when 
they're not burning any fat because the intensity is wrong and we go full circle. You know, again, it's about, I think, I I believe, yeah, being able to separate fact from fiction and appreciate that there is a lot of um, vested interest in health education. So you've got to be able to dive deeper and, and educate yourself and then share that with your family. Exactly. And, and the, you know, the children are, the children are most sensitive. Um, they're taking the brunt of some really bad things. One of the problems that's happening now is, is these genetic mutations are popping up uh, seemingly out of nowhere. You know, I mentioned the folate um, problem and the mutation that, uh, that, came about as a result of those probably as it's a relatively new thing but i think that's where the research is going is that it's going to show that the synthetic folate has created this mutation well there's a whole lot of other mutations and i don't think it was too long ago when i wrote an article about um lifestyle being you know so important for our future um diseases and only about five percent of our of the of the problems we may have are going to be genetic, but for ninety five percent of the time, it's the lifestyle factors that influence us most. That's changing. I don't know that it's ninety five anymore. I think the genetic problems are moving in, so to speak, and so now it could be seven, eight, ten percent. Of the diseases that we're getting, maybe 15% are genetic-based. So even if we do have a good lifestyle, um, and the folate problem is is one example, is because it it does make one's um, uh, vulnerability to to cancer much much greater. Oh, absolutely, and uh, inflammation. So, yeah, which yeah. is a problem for all chronic diseases. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one the one priority factor along with the carbohydrate intolerance, but the body fat, you know, the excess body fat is you know, if, it, a lot of times you you can confuse people if if you talk to them about these things. Just listening to this podcast might be confusing to some people. And I could understand that. Um uh, I, I was not a good student in school. It, school was confusing. Um, but many people want want something simple. Like, okay, tell me one thing I can do. Well, I'll tell you one thing you can do. Stop eating sugar. And that one thing will affect one of the most important things, which is it'll reduce excess body fat. And if you can reduce excess body fat, now you have this trickle-down effect that's positive because now you're going to control your chronic inflammation, your insulin resistance, your chronic diseases, your physical impairments, and you'll maintain a healthy brain. Yeah, 100%. It's all about longevity. So I think that is the one thing, but obviously... (laughs) A lot of people are very addicted, so then it becomes that that whole process for them of accepting where they're at and appreciating that it is going to be a little bit challenging because we know sugar is a very powerful drug, but 
absolutely just like tobacco, it's definitely possible to change those habits. Yeah, the the addiction component is is um, what makes the you know big sugars models so successful. They've got people, and I have an article, <clears throat> um, and I don't know if it's come out yet or not. <laughs> I'm embarrassed now. Ask me, I'll know. What's it called? Um, <laughs> it, it, it was it was the one about um, you know how how much does it take to do harm? Yes, it's been it's released. <laughs> so I'll just find the exact title. Go on. Mm. Yeah, basically, you know, it, it there, there's some new research that shows that that um, that eating sugar affects the taste buds. And that's part of the addiction mechanism, which we sort of suspected anyway. But the mechanism of doing that is the mechanism of inflammation. It's called minimal deadly dose. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't forget these things. I just don't keep up with, you know, we have, we're finally better organized and we have a flow of articles. I, I write an article and then I send it to my editor and and um he'll do an edit send it back to me and we have this you know with this juggling act where things just go back and forth and and then they get put out on a, every every week and um and I don't keep track of which ones get put of out course. I appreciate that very much but now I know I can ask you if I have any questions absolutely <laughs> <laughs> But it was interesting because um, the research showed that it was inflammation. It was the sugar stimulation and the inflammation that were, was destroying taste buds. And when the taste buds for sweet were destroyed, we had to eat more sweet because we didn't taste the sweet that we were eating, which is which is a you know a real physical component of the addiction process. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's really, it's really a neurological thing, but it's, it's, it's on the tongue, um, and uh, it, it was just, it was just interesting. So the, 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 you know, the addictive personality will say, um, well, I, I, I don't eat much. Um, Oh, I remember now part of that article talked about cigarette smoking and the fact that the number of people who smoke between one and 10 cigarettes has gone up significantly in the, te- in the past decade. Um, and it's because people think that smoking one or two cigarettes a day is okay. It's not okay. And having, you know, one cookie a day is not okay. I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. Um, and I know we linked to an article that came out um, a couple of years ago on moderation. Um, and the example I always use is the heroin addict who says, I'm only going to do heroin on s- Saturday night and Sunday afternoon. Mm. Would that be okay? Mm. Well, yeah. no, it's not okay. So there's there's really no difference. And is sugar as bad as heroin? It's actually worse. You want to put it in perspective? 
I so, just think that's such an important topic. Sorry to interrupt you there, but I feel like if we go back to thinking about the children, as you mentioned, they're the most sensitive. Like I'm not a parent, so I'll say that straight up. But I feel like there's this justification about sugar in children and, you know, there's they're active or they're young or we don't want them to miss out or whatever the conversation might be. But, mm-hmm. you know, we we absolutely need to appreciate that even that one taste of sweetness changes the taste buds and that's that impairment that, as you say, things taste less sweet and it drives that craving for more sugar and then obviously it's impacting our dopamine reward centres in the brain and that's the addiction process. It is the addiction um, the earliest stages of, of addiction and, and in children, it's more dangerous because they're developing, their brains are developing and their biochemistry is much more vulnerable and the damage is done at an earlier, at an earlier age. Um, and I think I also had an article on the autonomic imbalance and low resting heart rate and uh, antisocial behavior, that's that's what you see in children. And when you, I, I don't, I don't, I wrote a song about it. I don't have a TV. I don't read the newspapers, but um, someone told me there was a shooting here in Florida recently at a school, which apparently happens a lot in the U.S. Um, and it's sad. Um, but these are all acts of violence committed by children or very young adults who were bad children for probably a long time. Um, do we blame it on sugar? Man, it's not a stretch. I'm not going to say sugar causes that. But I will say that sugar contributes to brain dysfunction. That's pretty well known. And, and brain dysfunction and, you know, as a result of, of excess sugar affects autonomic balance. And there's that whole tie in with that, with that article that I was trying to tiptoe through in my words very carefully. <laughs> yeah, well, it is a sensitive topic. Like, I personally find it a little bit challenging to talk about because I don't want to judge anyone's choices, but it's right, not about right. judgment. It's about the deeper education to appreciate what these decisions are creating. Like, in in your article that you just referred to, um, which is called Abnormal Heart Rate and Antisocial Behaviour, you mentioned an article or a, a study, I believe, that – um, let me just find it again. It's talking about the the impact on the brain, um, and obviously the autonomic nervous system. Right, and it's pretty well known. It's it's not anything that scientists don't know about. People may not have heard about it. That's why I thought it would be a good article. But it is, I in the eyes of some people, it is offensive to bring up the topic. Um, In the song I wrote on this issue, the song is called Looking the Other Way. 
And I basically say in the song that, you know, this, this one person uh, killed all these children and then they decided they had to take away all the guns, which of course they never do. Um, but the, you know, if you, if you look down the street, there's all these other problems that nobody's paying attention to as well. And it's like looking the other way. Everybody's looking the other way. And, um, so much so that if we bring up an issue and, and talk about it from an, from an, an intellectual standpoint, a scientific standpoint, from a clinical standpoint, um, People are still offended. So, I, you know, and, and I've never shied away from doing that, <laughs> um, which is why I don't make a lot of friends. <laughs> yeah, well, I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but it's a, it's, it's real. And, um, you know, there's just so many of these topics that need to be written about and written about in different ways and uh people who have been reading my stuff for a long time know that i will often write about the same topic but in a different way because i think that it's it's important because you write something and people read it and a lot of people it it just goes over their head not intellectually but they just don't quite get it but if you bring up the same topic in a different way all of a sudden they get it. So it's it's really part of the education process. I do it myself. I'm learning every day. I'm in the I'm in the medical library every day reading journal articles. And there are topics that I really struggle with and and I've learned to look for different research approaches to those topics because I know I'll understand it differently and better if I do that in you know, so it's it's helped me write different articles about similar topics to to get the attention of more people. It's very, I think, very important. Yeah, amazing. I just wanted to go back to the the study that was titled um, "The Impact of Junk Foods on Adolescent Brain," which shows how poor <laughs> dietary choices can derail normal neurodevelopment. So it's pretty powerful. Yeah. Yeah, and there's still there's still uh, parent-teacher conflicts, you know, in schools and having junk food and what you know, you know, it wasn't that long ago that hospitals outlawed cigarette smoking. Most of them still have junk food. Almost all of them have junk food, even though. Uh, and I don't remember the name of this guy. He's an ethics professor at one of the universities. He said having junk food in hospitals is unethical. Um, and it is. Of course it's unethical. You know, we're a hospital. We're here to fix people. We want to teach health. We're doctors. The word doctor means teacher. We're going to teach you how to be healthy. Well, they don't do that. Number one, that's a problem. But number two, they've got all this junk food that's contributing to the ill health of the of the patients and the health practitioners. Yeah. It's another topic altogether, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. I always enjoy our chats and I could definitely speak to you all day, but hopefully now we can have you as a regular guest on The Real Food Real and we'll be hearing from you again very soon. But you and I have discussed lots of different articles, which I'll include in the show notes, um, as well as more information about your new supplement range. So thank you again for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you, Steph. I really appreciate your support. And yeah, I'm, I'm happy to come on whenever you're ready for more of me. Absolutely. I'll hold you to that. Look forward to speaking again soon. Likewise. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This year, the Wellness Summit returns. The only lesson is ever going to be your learning. That's it. As long as you're learning, that's your lesson. When you stand in front of the mirror, the talk, the things that go on between these ears in the morning can also be what sets you up for a day. And if you've beaten yourself up for not being the most extraordinary person that you can be, then start now. We make it hard for ourselves. We make things difficult for ourselves because we go and apply a whole bunch of stories and a whole bunch of drama and a whole bunch of I'm not good enough to the things that occur in our lives. Wake the heck up. Today is a new day. And here's where it can change. Kim Morrison and Karen Smith feature at the 2018 Wellness Summit. Bigger and better than ever. Tickets on sale Friday, May 4 at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.